This is Decoding Healthcare. I'm Joanna Weiss. And I'm Kevin Bam. And Kevin, I don't know if you've heard, but the universe is expanding. <laughs> yes, I've heard. The universe is expanding. <laughs> I'm not an expert here, but I'm a doctor and will have an opinion. I'm sure you will. I am not an expert in the cosmos either, but I know this has been a year of big astronomic events. And I also know that we might need to consult the stars to figure out what's happening next in healthcare. Oh, you're referring to the solar eclipse. Am yes, I right about that? Yes, that is something that happened. Well, I'm not sure about the universe, but the one thing I can tell you is back here on Earth, new payment models are really driving change. And that means that care teams, much like the universe, are going to expand. I see what you did there. <laughs> now I got it. I know. I'm going to keep going. We are getting to the point where we are looking at doctors not as individual burning stars, but as members of constellations. And that isn't always an easy adjustment. Some providers just have a hard time letting someone else manage, and I'll put in air quotes here, you know, their patients instead of our patients. That was Dr. Rob Fields. Rob's the medical director at Mission Health Partners ACO in Asheville, North Carolina, and he has spent a lot of time thinking about care delivery and building out teams. I can imagine that's a really hard thing to do. As a doctor especially, you've got a certain mindset that you've been trained with, and now you've got to change it completely. It's very difficult. You know, we spend a lot of time learning how to care for patients, and we do that in a certain system. And then to change that is not our forte. I mean, that requires a lot of change management, and the truth is we're often not that good at it. So we're going to talk to Rob today about how to do that change management, how to build and manage care teams, how to get doctors to embrace clinical standards of care, how to measure the work of community groups that help with social determinants. So let's dig right into your conversation. Rob, help me understand exactly what you mean by the art of medicine uh, is behavior change. What we're finding is that the knowledge and the clinical decision, sort of internal algorithms that we go through to make clinical decisions, more and more are being replicated uh, in an artificial intelligence sort of way. So we can go online, for example, and anyone, any consumer can go online and get base knowledge on how to manage heart failure or diabetes or high blood pressure. So the knowledge is really less, it's less of a secret than it used to be. That's not really the art of it at all. And the joy of medicine, but the really important parts when I think about the art of medicine are the patient interactions, is how do we motivate behavior change in patients to self-manage their chronic illnesses and get to better outcomes. I think that's the challenge. When, um, and so when I think about the art is less about the knowledge, but more about how do we get patients to ingest or, or how do we transfer that knowledge to patients in a way that they can absorb and then do something with it. I mean, how do we get patients to change their diet, to exercise, to do the things they need to do? That's really interesting. You're actually seeing really the role of the physician changing significantly as a result of everything that's happening with technology and with data. What is the key role of a physician and her interaction with a patient? You know, I think simplistically you could say that it's more of a coaching model. I mean, but maybe I would call it informed compassion. I mean, what patients are looking for, certainly in the primary care side more than anything else, is less of a technician they, they assume quality in almost every instance. Right. But what they don't assume is that the person listening is actually going to be invested in them as a person and actually have compassion. And that's a sad state, but that's exactly where I feel like we are most of the times. And we look at several studies evaluating patient experience and patient satisfaction in the healthcare industry that comes up over and over again. Right. 
You know, a lot of people talk about data and how it's beginning to shape the way we care for patients. And the criticism is that it's just too much. We just have too much data. And we're trying to make medicine somehow a cookbook type of approach to caring for people. And that is really reducing people to numbers. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I disagree with that completely. I mean, I do agree that there is a lot of data and it is difficult in the typical model of practicing medicine, it's difficult to decipher what's relevant and what's not. I, I, I buy that, but I, I disagree with the concept that it's turning into cookbook medicine in that if someone, for example, has an A1C of nine, where they're clearly out of control with their diabetes, right? So it is not a secret. Really, there are plenty of published studies. There are standards of care that exist and can be readily found to help the provider in making a decision or a recommendation as to what to do next. That's not the difficult part. The difficult part is using not only the data, but also the individual characteristics of the patient, their demographics, their, you know, where are they financially? Can they afford the medicines I'm about to prescribe them? It's taking all those other elements in the context of the data to provide the best outcome. What is the crux of the problem? What is the main, like, what are we getting at here? It's not the data. What is it? Well, I think on the provider side, it's the inability to impact other things besides the medical pieces that actually make a difference. Because if you don't have those other parts right, if you don't know the patient well enough or their story well enough, you won't be successful, period, and the patient won't reach their goals. You know, what we're really seeing, and this happens across many systems, is as people dive into the data and they begin to understand it, it leads to transformation of care. And roles really begin to change. So what does that look like for you guys? How did the physicians initially react to the data? And then subsequently, as you've gotten deeper into value-based care, what type of change has happened? One of the things that has changed is how we staff. So in a very concrete operational way, what has been clear is that a lot of high-performing providers out there do a great job with the patients that are in the office. You know, the patient they see every day, they are able to counsel them appropriately, get all their needed preventive measures done for the patients that they see. They have good outcomes. Everything's great. But what many practices, even high-functioning practices lack, is really managing the population that's not in the office. You know, how do you have line of sight on the people that you don't see regularly? And you can get very busy and very absorbed, I think, understandably, in the chronically ill patients that come to your office four, five, six, seven times a year or more in some cases because they are intensely sick But how well do we do on the patients that we don't see all the time or we see once a year or somehow disappear and only show up once every year and a half, that sort of thing, often in crisis? That's where I think I've seen the biggest shift is really doing more outreach from the practice to manage the greater population and not just the folks that they have line of sight on day to day. How do you guys think about that? Now, I'm assuming that it's not the doctor who's reaching out to these people. How do you guys achieve that? So I, you're right, it's not the provider. I mean, I can't, there's already too much, as, as you know, in, in the day-to-day work of the office to really add that on. But it is about changing your staffing model to be ready for value-based care. And sometimes that means adding an additional medical assistant or adding, in some cases, if you have the resources, a clinical pharmacist or an LCSW. So that's what we're seeing is that we're seeing medical assistants now run registry reports on those that are they need their breast cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening, their diabetes follow-up, that sort of thing. 
um, and doing more outbound approaches. And sometimes it may not even involve the provider at all, but it doesn't mean they're getting bad care. Right? And I think that's, it's been a little bit of a leap of faith. You know, providers often feel a great sense of ownership of their patients. And so if you're talking to them about having protocols in place where the medical assistant can just go ahead and order the colorectal cancer screening or the breast cancer screening or have a clinical pharmacist do an outreach for somebody and really help them manage their diabetes independent of the provider, as long as they're getting to the right outcome, that's not bad care. And it's not a replacement at all of the provider. It's really an extension of, and that's a philosophical shift that's been, in some cases, difficult, depending on where the provider is coming from. Yeah, that uh, the team can really work together. And ultimately, what this does is it pushes the physician to the top of their license. I know everyone says that, but that's what happens. And then you have other people who are doing the outreach and the engagement. In your experience, who, who are the best people to do that type of work? We've had great success in a typical primary care practice and even in a specialty practice with high-functioning medical assistants. Um, so you take an experienced medical assistant and they can be wonderful, very high-functioning. Um, we have also had incredible success with clinical pharmacy. Tell me more about that. That's, that's a big deal. So let's, yeah. let's dive into that. Absolutely. So I think traditionally pharmacists have been uh, pigeonholed into specific roles. So besides just being a dispensing pharmacist, we often, even in clinical pharmacy, will relegate those roles to anticoagulation and prior authorization. And that's really, a, as you mentioned earlier, talk about not using someone to the top of their license. I mean, the, a clinical pharmacist with a clinical pharmacist protocol in place, a CPP protocol, a clinical pharmacist practitioner, excuse me, um, you can use them almost like an advanced practitioner, like a nurse practitioner or a PA. And so one of the ways that we use them in the office, for instance, is let's say I see a patient who is uh, perhaps new to insulin. Not only can they provide education, but often I will depend on the clinical pharmacist to do follow-up phone calls and titration of the insulin to get them to goal. So you think of the standard model would be at time zero, I've started the insulin and I make a change, perhaps give a little bit of guidance on titration for the first few weeks, but then I'll see them back. A few weeks later, you know, sometimes it can be a month or even in some cases three months later. And it's hard to have real-time change during that process in between visits. Whereas if you set a care plan and you have a clinical pharmacist follow up, you can have real-time titration of the medication. So by the time you see them, they can be much closer to goal than they would have been otherwise with just incremental change. And you can do that with blood pressure, you can do that with diabetes, you can do that with heart failure. Do you embed them into clinical practices? or Absolutely. So, yeah, tell me more about that. And even how yeah. the physicians perceived it up front versus now. Sure. It just takes some small wins um, to get a patient to goal, for instance, or to identify a potential uh, medication error or identify a situation where the provider didn't know that they prescribed X, but the patient was already taking Y, and the combination would have been disastrous. And when we get those small wins, that has really helped. Financially, you know, we are not fully in the value-based world. We still, most of our reimbursement comes fee-for-service. So I think paying for a clinical pharmacist has sometimes been an issue. But there are some great published models out there using clinical pharmacists to do your annual wellness exams, which in the value-based world is huge. So if you can increase the utilization of the annual wellness visit and the completion of annual wellness visits, 
It helps in your attribution within the MSSP, for instance, as well as other value-based arrangements in the Medicare Advantage space. It allows for closure of gaps um, during the Medicare wellness visit. And it allows a fee structure that helps pay for the clinical pharmacist to do other work that's not readily reimbursed in the typical Medicare world. So it can be done. And again, in particular, in the value-based world, it can be immensely valuable. Yeah. In fact, I've had several conversations about if you could only do one thing, what would that thing be? And I've heard uh, a lot of people say I, I would focus on the annual wellness visit. You know, I think annual wellness visits from a, gosh, from a value perspective, it's worth everything we do to boost those numbers up. It's better for patients. Providers in general do not like the wellness visit. It doesn't fit right into the provider structure or culture. Um, the fact that it doesn't actually include an exam, for instance, is I think people have a hard time getting past that. And the patient honestly has a hard time with it. I mean, they, they come to see me. They expect me to, at a minimum, listen to their heart lungs and and touch them, you know, and examine them. And they also will come to me with other problems uh, that have nothing to do with their preventive visit. Sure. So I think it actually works better to have a pharmacist do it uh, because it's less distracting and it feels more natural. Rob, when you think about the work that you're doing, what are some of the more successful programs or the ones uh, that uh, show most promise? Well, I think at a very basic level, our entire care coordination model is based on social determinants. And I know that every ACO I talk to gives at a minimum lip service to the concept of social determinants. But what we do differently is hold our care coordinators accountable for closing social determinants gaps. And our care coordination tool allows us to do that. So what I mean very concretely is if we do an assessment on a patient for whatever reason, based on their risk score or a referral or a transitions call, they, they, we do an initial assessment for care coordination we assess, along with their clinical needs and their clinical status, we assess their social determinants needs, so housing, transportation, finances, et cetera. And then we have a network of community partners that are actually engaged in the tool. They log on to the tool just like a provider would or a nurse would. And when they receive that referral from the patient, they have line of sight into the care plan. So when we talk about who's coordinating the care coordinators, we are starting to build that community network model for social determinants in the context of a health network, which I think is unique in the way that it's been done so concretely. And I think the other thing we do operationally, like I mentioned, is not only do we run typical productivity reports on things like number of phone calls, number of touches to patients, we actually track closure of what we call pathways, but as social determinants pathways. And, and it's not really as a measure of how well the care coordinator is able to solve social determinants problems, but it's how well we are doing as a community and where our gaps are and where we need to build resources so we can use it as a mode of advocacy. So I'm particularly proud of that. That's a great point because a lot of times I think there's a reluctance even to ask the question because you're not sure what you'll do with the answer. And that's a key Absolutely. element to this, right. right? Like, if I'm going to ask you about your living situation or food insecurity, I have to feel like I can follow up on that. Otherwise, it's just sort of this hanging chad that I don't know what to do with. That's right. And there's nothing more discouraging as a provider of any sort, whether you're a physician or a nurse or anyone, where you're drawing out potentially sensitive information from someone and then have nothing to do about it when you get the, I'll say the bad answer. 
you know, you get the answer that's a, often a tragic story or a desperate need. And, and as I said, what do you do with it? We have developed a community network and we target our assessments specifically to the agencies that are available to that patient. So each agency has its own care coordinator. Often the housing agency is trying to solve a food insecurity problem or a transportation problem, which is not their expertise, but they're left trying to deal with the whole person. So I think as we mature and grow that network, not just our network of providers, but our network of agencies and our community, that would be a huge sign of success is that we can facilitate the work of all the nonprofits to make them much more efficient than they are now. We have a few, several other programs I'm, I'm really proud of, and we have a community paramedic program, which is not unique to us, of course. Yeah, let's pick that apart for a second, a community paramedic program. Tell me more about what you're doing. Our care coordination team is primarily phone-based, so 95% of their outreach is, is really just over the phone. So that means that frequently we need someone who's in the home assessing safety, doing a medication reconciliation, just being the eyes and ears on the ground. And we can dispatch a group of community paramedics. So these are paramedics that in their normal day job are part of our regional transport services. So these are folks that are critical care trained paramedics that transport folks from uh, community hospitals, smaller regional hospitals or critical access hospitals back to the tertiary care center or from one ICU at one hospital to another. And they carve out part of their time to work with us, to be dispatched. There's no charge to the patient. There's no billing involved. But we can send the paramedic to the home to do anything from a safety assessment to a clinical assessment, medication reconciliation, often just establishing a relationship. We have a a great story of a patient who was labeled as non-adherent and perhaps belligerent. He had fired home health. He had fired the local council on aging had difficulty really engaging with the provider and showing up to the office. So we received a referral to go see this patient. The first three meetings with the patient occurred in the driveway in the community paramedic vehicle because the patient refused to let him in the house. Right, right. It was sort of a process of building trust somehow. Absolutely. And, you know, after those three or four visits, the patient agreed to let the the paramedic in the home. And it turns out that, that he was a hoarder. And um, he had no heat and no running water. He had a rain catchment system for water. So you can imagine a man with COPD and other health conditions in a home with no heat in the winter and no running water was not a good situation. But because there was that relationship built, he ultimately, you know, will fast forward and re-engaged all the community partners and got him to the right outcome and his home repaired and the house cleaned up. But it took that relationship And it it wasn't specific to a paramedic, but it was specific to having someone that's willing to put in the time to build a relationship. That is the type of hard work that really needs to happen. And I think anyone who gets involved in value-based care and begins to understand that this is not about diagnosis and treatment. This is really about the social determinants, and that is a really powerful story. Yep. Do you then get asked later by financial powers within your system. Dr. Fields, can you help us understand what the ROI on this is? Like, that story is unbelievably (laughs) powerful, but I think if you were asked to sort of generate an ROI, what does that look like? That feels like a totally different conversation. Yeah, it's challenging, and it's imperfect. We can look back at historical utilization. That's what everyone's interested in, right, is utilization and cost savings. And so we could go back and look at historical ER visits and admissions and then 
try to extrapolate from that, well, because we, we did this, whatever this might be, and the ER visits reduced by this amount, well, that, that's because of us. It's funny, as you talk to other ACOs that have achieved shared savings, and you ask them, well, what'd you do? Most of them have no idea, because you don't do one thing, you do seven things, and you hope that you know any one or some combination of those seven things actually adds up to a success story or multiple success stories. And that's a closer to the truth, that it's really messy. Um, and to point to any one intervention is, is difficult. Kevin, that was fascinating to me, partly because it acknowledged how much healthcare by necessity takes place outside of a doctor's office. You know, before we got into value-based care, I don't think people had a deep appreciation for how much people's lives get in the way of their care. And I'll tell you, these are the types of stories that begin to emerge as you get into value-based care. These are really complicated situations that are going to require out-of-the-box solutions. And as you start to get into value-based care, as you turn the payment model on its head, it's the type of innovation you see. On the other hand, so much of healthcare is still centered in the doctor's office, and so much of this innovation has to be driven and supported by healthcare systems. There is a certain amount of blocking and tackling. This is meat and potatoes work that needs to get done. What Rob's talking about is very innovative, sort of out of the box treatment schemes. But the truth is, doing the basic stuff, like managing your network, something we're about to talk about in our next upcoming episode, is fundamental. Right, not just financially, but because the information that you're gathering from those patients needs to stay in network as well. It's better care and really the right thing to do for people. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer and composer and jack-of-all-trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm at Kevin Ban, MD. And I'm at Joanna Weiss. And for more stories about healthcare in America today, go to athenainsight.com. <laughs> <laughs>